0: This is Bellator Colloquium, a podcast of the Bellator Society. Bellator in Latin means warrior, and a colloquium is a conversation. We at the Bellator Society are online warriors for the true, good, and beautiful, and this podcast is our conversation about all those things and so much more. Meet us here weekly at Bellator Colloquium and at bellatorsociety.com for content that will hopefully lift you, inspire you, comfort you, and make you feel a part of our Bellator Society. Hello,
1: Bellator Society. Good morning and thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'm Tracy Eddy, and in Nashville, Tennessee, I've got my friend and co host, Fran Yeager. Good morning,
0: Fran. Good morning, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you.
1: Good, good. We're so excited. We are joined. We have a special guest today. We are joined by T- Dr. Tommy Humphreys from uh, St. Leo University uh, by way of Arkansas. So we all have a mutual connection in Arkansas, but he is a an associate professor um, in, at St. Leo University, and he also is like an EMT, and he's a forester and has all kinds of degrees, and we can't wait to talk to him, but he's a um one of our newest blog contributors. So he has recently written um a couple blogs for us and we're just thrilled to have him. And I just want to say hello and good morning to you.
2: Well hello and good morning to you as well, Tracy and friend. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to be here.
0: We are thrilled. It's gonna be a good podcast because as Tracy just said, uh Tommy has Bona Fides as a theologian as well as a firefighter, EMT. Oh, I guess it's that you 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 In a way, you light fires, but you also put them out. It's true. Do you feel that that is true? Yes. There's
2: there's a real like job confusion sometimes though I have to instantly switch between wait a minute I want this to burn keep going and between no no, no, no
0: stop. love it that's exactly right we have a mutual friend who has a meme that he shares perennially and uh, you probably have received it to your phone Tommy and Tracy and um it's of a little kind of chubby baby doing a fist pump saying work for the church and still Catholic you know <laughs> yeah. like like there's something about working for the church maybe even being a theologian that um that it makes you realize kind of like what the inner cogs are doing and and I don't want to go down the road of being critical about the church but I do want to say is that why you are also a firefighter like a, because you're a volunteer no one's paying you to do this but are you like I got to do something else sometimes
2: <laughs> it is true got to get out of the house got to drive a big red truck and uh, and think about totally different things
0: yes yes so I w- hope you don't mind if we draw you back in to to your to your licensure in terms of um, being a theologian and, and a, an academic, as source. but um, this first month of Bellator, um, we we kind of brought you in really as one of our only academics, um, and you have approached things that are that are a little bit more serious in your blogs. But I appreciate it so much, and I know our readership does as well. Um, before we jump into our topic and um, re- re- referencing your blogs, what's your favorite class to teach at Saint Leo?
2: So surprisingly, one of the classes that, that I end up teaching and liking a lot is a graduate spirituality class. And I say surprisingly, because when I finished doing all of my training, I really did not think that I would be teaching in the field of spirituality proper. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd be teaching church history, doctrine, you know, those kinds of things. That, that's where, really where a lot of my coursework had been right before I got hired. Uh, well, there was a need to teach spirituality. I did it. I, I did it well. Uh, And I enjoy it. So that's been the most surprising and rewarding class.
0: What's your spirituality, Tommy? Other than Catholic, (laughs) other than Catholic, we know, we know that's the big umbrella, but under the umbrella of Catholicism, we have different veins of spirituality. It's all, it's all the same blood, but different types, you know? So, so what, what is yours? What's your blood type? Uh, I'm deeply, deeply (laughs) Benedictine. Uh, Okay. Tell us what that means.
2: Yeah, well, I I teach at a Benedictine University. We're over 100 years old. Uh, The Benedictines have been in Florida for a while. Like most places, like Subiaco back home, Mm -hmm. uh, the monastery sort of founded a whole Catholic community around it. This is part of what happens with Benedictine monasteries. And that bleeds over into education, into schools, colleges, universities. Part of what it means uh, for me is the stability and the roots that Benedict asks all of his monks to have Mm -hmm.
3: there's a sense that
2: the rule that's right that's right um you know you are the same person on retreat as you are off retreat you are the same person in your monastic cell as you are outside of your cell and for me going on long retreats with Benedictines having some fantastic directors who were Benedictine monks and priests has really helped me come to terms with those kinds of things. I am who I am, wherever I go. And so I can't run away anywhere else and, and just be a different person long-term. I mean, I can pretend for a while, but no, go, go on a long retreat. And two or three days later, you find out the same issues that you had last week at <laughs> home are the issues you have now that you're on retreat. And so it's time to get down to the business of facing those.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: So let's jump into your blogs. You ready? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You started our, and you may not have meant to do this. Well, you couldn't have meant to do this because you didn't format them to publish. But when you wrote your blog, uh, My Adam to Your Eve, I felt like it was the perfect way for us to introduce this month of uh, male and female. He created them. That is our blog theme for, for, for this month. And this fit so perfectly because it was the genesis right? It is where we get this idea. It's not just, it's not just Genesis, the book in the Bible, but it is the Genesis of our understanding of human sexuality. And, and you treated it so smartly, but concisely and efficiently, um, as, a, as really an introduction to, to where we got this crazy idea that there are males and females in the world. And so I would love to just kind of like jump into the content of that particular blog. Cause I think I, people would love to hear more discussion about it, but before we do, that. How influential was JP2 in your own maturation of faith?
2: So I, I absolutely love John Paul II, and he's been deeply influential in in the vast majority of my theology. In <laughs> fact, there was a time when I thought that I was basically just going to teach theology of the body, uh, and not, that's definitely not how my career has gone. I was born when John Paul II was Pope. Uh, I mean, I, actually, I was born in the year that he was made Pope, right? Uh, so Woo-hoo! he has been my only Pope, uh, until he died. And then, then Benedict was elected. Uh, and I was in grad school when all of that happened. So just like anybody, you know, the, the major figures are obviously going to be deeply important, but I'll say uh, a huge turning point for me. I was doing youth ministry and particularly the year that I was in Fort Smith, uh, working with a life team program there. I read theology, of the body, the, the Sunday catechesis from John Paul II. The and a whole of, thing? Uh, yep, the whole thing. The wow. Whole thing. Uh, Why and not? so it was, yeah, it's lovely, right? They're, <laughs> they're short readings. It, it was actually uh, part of my regular uh, prayer cycle. I would sit in adoration and I would read uh, one or two of those homilies basically every day. Now there's some translation that has to happen between something that someone wrote over the course of decades, you know, and, and a pope preaching and musing on things, and what you're doing in high school youth ministry. But I came to realize that all the questions that that we want to ask are really rooted in that. Mm -hmm. Who am I? Right, and that's a key question. That's not just a key question for adults and not just a key question for adolescents, though it is very important to our formation. I realized, you know, what I'm doing in youth ministry with high schoolers is helping them ask and answer the question, who am I? And that's effectively what John Paul II was doing. And so there was just this perfect marriage in my own life, my own development, and my own lay ministry at that time that made John Paul II a, a deep vein of my work and my thought and my reflections.
0: Well, as much as he was like a it's case, yeah. Go ahead.
2: I was just, it's, it's also the case that we're attracted to people. And, you know, I think every one of us stops and thinks, wait a minute, why am I attracted to that kind of a woman? Or why am I attracted to that kind of man? Or, you know, mm-hmm. wh- what does that say about me mm-hmm. that I like these other people or these are my friends and these are people I, I don't like as much or I'm not attracted to them?
3: Yeah.
2: And, and I think theology of the body, especially from, from John Paul II's perspective, helps us answer those questions for ourselves as well as sit with them and become better.
0: Well, and I was just going to say, in reference to you saying that you know you were reading this at the same time that you were working in youth ministry, uh, John Paul II was was not just a a I mean the quintessential theologian for our times, but also well I don't want to take too much away from Benedict XVI as well, but he was a different kind of theologian. But he was an anthropologist. Like he his his goal was to help us understand who we were from the beginning, how we were made, how we were created, and how we um, evolved in, in the good way. But like how how we have come Come to un- how we fell away, how we have been brought back, how we can realize who we are in Christ and in God um, as human persons. But this is what high schoolers, specifically people in adolescence, these are the things that they want to know. And so to read that at the same time as, as, you know, as your work in that ministry, I feel like was just kismet. I mean, just perfectly, per- perfectly placed. I love that.
1: Can you give us a, we talk about theology of the body um, on our podcast quite frequently, and we have people that write about it, but for people who don't really know what that is and for people who are listening to us um, on our podcast, can you give just a, I know it's, there's no way to it, <laughs> a, quick, a quick, but can you, can you, and not, not even dumb it down, but can you simplify it and, and sort yeah. of tell us what theology of the, of the body is so that um, as we're throwing terms out like that, people um, can follow along and, and know you know, know uh, what we're talking absolutely. about. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, so John Paul II, uh, you know, pops out of the, the window and he gives these audiences these addresses. Popes do this all the time. And early on in some of his reflections, he just coins the phrase he says, I, I really want to do a theology of the body here. And what he means by that is, uh, as a Catholic theologian, as a bishop, the Pope, I want to think about what it means to have a body. In light of what we think about and know about God and what God tells us about Himself and about ourselves. So, a theology of the body really is just a, a study of what it means that God made us with bodies. Mm-hmm. If we want to talk about it in language that's sometimes more familiar to Catholics, we're really operating in the sacramental principle. Uh, and of course, the sacrament, you know, the classic definition an outward sign of an inward grace instituted by Christ for the sanctification of humanity, right? Um, a body is an outward sign, plain and simple, right? It's what tells us where someone is, and of course we have souls, we have thoughts, we have emotions, we have all these things that are interior. Right. And our purpose is to get to heaven, uh, and and we're created by God, right? I mean the, these things match up so fantastically well that you cannot miss the obvious, and the obvious in this case is that God made us all living, walking, breathing sacraments, right? Uh, And we have to stop and think about each element of the sacrament. What does it mean that we use bread and wine in the Eucharist? What does it mean that we use water and oils and these things in in our other sacraments? What does it mean that I have a body and that my body works well sometimes and, and does not work well other times, right? What does it mean that I have a body that interacts with other bodies in particular ways? As a Catholic, we know that what's physical is not all there is, and so we have to stop and say, hey, I see a human body there. There's more than just what I see. There's more than just what I touch or smell, uh, right? There's more to this other person than the human senses. And John Paul II meditates deeply on what it means that God chose to make us with bodies. Mm-hmm. At, at the heart of making us with bodies is that we come with two different kinds of bodies, Right. Uh, and so you you have to stop and, and read Genesis deeply and say, what's going on here? We have two stories in the opening book of Genesis. Right. Uh, well, Genesis one that runs a little bit into Genesis two and then Genesis two that runs on through Genesis three. Now, these these two accounts uh, are absolutely 100 percent lockstep on the same page when it comes to the question of what does it mean to be a human? Vis-a-vis that question of a body, right? And the first account, uh, God wants to create humanity on the sixth day. as the capstone. It's like the afternoon of the sixth day. Everything's coming to its great final moment, and God says, "Let us make man in our image, male and female." He created them, right? As if there's no way to create a human with a body other than to create a male body and a female body. It just, they have to come together, right? And in Genesis two we get a very similar point made though differently i think genesis 2 following john ball 2 of course operates by basically saying hey what would happen if we made a human and only had one body
3: mm-hmm.
2: and and the answer is a couple of verses later it doesn't work it's not good to be alone
3: mm-hmm. yeah
2: and and then we get the question you know could any other body fit that need mm-hmm. could a dog or a cow or any other kind of created Physical thing, and the answer is no, right? right? So that's why that that version, that way of thinking about it, expands until the the atom says at last, this one's bone of my bones and flesh my flesh. This one has a body like mine. John Paul II is saying a theology of the body recognizes God was intentional in in giving us bodies, and that these bodies. Uh, really do mean something. They mm-hmm. tell us about the person, and, and and we cannot get away from that.
0: I'd like to jump into what you were just um, kind of pointing to in your kind of exegetical a thought experiment you, you actually called it a thought experiment in your blog piece uh, my adam to your eve uh, where you say specifically if we were to attempt life simply as adam you know think about that like if there were just to be this one person and, and you just kind of reference that because i do think that um th- the human person human beings are in a way um sacramental signs of god that god exists i mean jesus christ the man I mean, he, he was a biological man, is a sacrament of God in that he is a sign of God, right? In, in a way, not like one of the seven sacraments. Again, I don't want to get into that, <laughs> that argument again, which we've had so many times. We're just talking about this idea of sacramentality, right? But, but what you're pointing to is this nuptial sacramentality, where it is only together, not only together, but in that togetherness of male and female, how they fit together, that it is a sacrament of maybe the Trinity, would you, would you say that that is is where is, is a correct um, reference point like where that nuptial sacramentality of the body is pointing us to is it pointing us to the Trinity? What is it pointing to?
2: Well they're, they're going to be Trinitarian overtones or footsteps everywhere, right? I mean if, if the fundamental mystery of the universe is the Trinity, the Father, Son and Spirit, and the, then we would expect to see that everywhere. Uh, there are always problems when we try to think about analogies going from the created order to the uncreated order. So a a popular analogy is to think of marriage, like a man and a woman and a child, and and to try to use that sense of threefold fulfillment in love Mm -hmm. as a reference to God's threefold fulfillment in love. Look, the analogy works insofar as an analogy works. It, Mm -hmm. It can help us think about those things, but it fails in as much as every analogy fails. Uh, and so in that sense, it's a, it's a very helpful line of thought. Uh, it's certainly not the only line of thought, and it also has its weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So we want to be sure that we attend in any analogy to both its successes and its weaknesses. And for contrast, uh, an analogy works differently than does a sacrament, right? So when we talk about this sacramentality or, or that you know one human is a sacrament of another, um, I, I think of it like this, you know, how do I know where my wife's soul is? Why am I not looking for my wife's soul in in the corner of the office where I am now or mm-hmm. outside? I'm not looking for a soul there because her body's not there, mm-hmm. right? The part of the point of a human body is to say, hey, here's where my soul is. Mm-hmm. Here's where I am. And I mean, think of all the T-shirts that say "I'm up here," right? Like you know, <laughs> look at me here. Don't look at me there, right? This is a very deep, meaningful part of being a human.
0: Um, and, You're referencing here so, like matter and form as well. Like I mean, not to get too technical, but like the matter is the bo- that that is the her physical. body. You know, when we're talking about sacraments, the matter is the thing that you see, and the form is what it is. And uh, so, in a way, would you say that the soul is the form of the body? I know we're getting a little philosophical here. Yeah, but, yeah, no, uh, yeah.
2: Absolutely. And that's a, that's a pretty traditional answer when you use substance and and matter and form as your way of kind of thinking about things. Uh, And and of course, part of that reflection is you cannot separate matter and form, right? Following Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas. And, of course, this is deeply in the mind of John Paul too as well when we're talking about theology of the body. A human person is both matter and form. You mm. cannot separate them. And we see the same thing in the flip side, right? I mean, what does it mean when someone says, uh, look, I'm sorry I cannot attend your baseball game. I have to be at another meeting. But I'm there in spirit. My soul will be there. My mind will be there. It's like, thanks, eh. Dad. <laughs> That's the best you can do, right? But um, right, we, we want all of you here. I want you yeah. present yeah. Mind, body and soul, emotions, focus, all of that kind of stuff.
0: Um, and if you could just level up on the bi-location, that would be really helpful. <laughs>
2: exactly. So, <thanks>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So a sacrament then, you know, what we're saying about where the human person is, that's different from saying it's an analogy,
3: right? right? I'm not yeah. saying
2: when I see my wife's body, it reminds me of or points me towards, you know, indicates a soul that's somehow present somewhere else. Yeah. I'm saying those two things always come together. Yeah, It's different when we're thinking about human marriage and the Trinity, Okay, right? The a human marriage could exist apart from the Trinity in that sense, or wouldn't necessarily lead us to, to the deepest or best reflections. But on the flip side, of course it's there. And mm-hmm. in fact, I think, you know, one of the, the deepest forms of, if, I call it Trinitarian spirituality. One, one of the deepest meditations you can have in your own life is to think about the kind of giving and receiving that happens between spouses, right? Because here we're talking about a complete self-emptying, at least when you're doing it well, right? I, I exist completely for my wife in, in the ideal, and she does for me in reality a lot. Uh, and And that is a deep part of how we understand the relationship between the father and the son and the spirit, right? I mean, Jesus says, all that I have has been given to me by the father. I am nothing except what the father has given to me. And of course the father's identity is wrapped up completely in what it means to be father to the son and, you know, janitor of the spirit and, and the spirit to the father and to the son. And when I start thinking about that, I think about my identity as a husband and it, it really is nothing other than to exist for my wife, mm-hmm. um, right? So, so there we get a, a profound insight into the nature of love and self-gift.
0: That total donation that of self, yeah.
2: Yep. We start to move from an analogy about marriage and the Trinity to the actual content of scripture where, where God is trying to tell us in Revelation this is what it means to be God. This is what it means to be Father, Son, and Spirit, is to have this, this complete self-donation, self-gift. Um, now, that's easiest to see often in marriage or in parenting, uh, but I think it's actually the basic form of love everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Your best friend is someone to whom you give yourself freely and receive yourself, and, and you receive your best friend's self and, I don't know, you you get it. We could talk on and on, uh, but I think a a genuine pattern of love really does fit there. And that's what we're doing when we're trying to think about the analogy between spousal love or nuptial love and Trinitarian love.
0: That was a very able able point towards chastity. I mean, just there, is that loving in the correct context, but loving with the whole person freely and totally and faithfully and fruitfully. All of those things can be applied to every human relationship within the correct context. I love that.
2: Yes. In fact, if, if you think about, you know, the way you will love your neighbor, sometimes even selfishly, I want my neighbor to have the right kind of hedge trimming equipment because I want him to trim the hedge between our <laughs> properties, right? So I'm going to I'm going to enable him to be very creative and fertile in his lawn keeping, right? Um, the way the way we love our children, right? Uh, I, I I want. I want my daughter to succeed wildly. Right. I want to be creative through her in her. I want to set her up to succeed my, my students as well. Uh, and of course that's a pretty harsh and demanding love. As a professor, sometimes you stepped over the line here. You didn't get it right there. Try it again. Uh, but, but it's all aimed at giving people what they need to succeed and figuring out what of myself I can give to get them to do that. That, that seems to be exactly what God's doing with us. Right. Uh, helping us be ourselves, loving us to be fertile, to be creative, to multiply. And I mean, in the glorious ways of, of marriage that involves exceptionally pleasurable kinds of activities, right? Uh, and, and it is also pleasurable to love our children, but under different forms and, and to love our neighbors and these things, right? So I, I think you're exactly right, Fran. We have to talk about how to love appropriately, um, but we have to understand that that in all relationships we're loving. Yeah, it's just that different relationships have different kinds of appropriate expressions, and also different needs, right? My my daughter needs a different kind of love from me than does my wife, um, and that's fair. That. That's it's just be true. a basic part of the theology of the body as well.
0: <laughs> exactly. So I yep. did like I I want to kind of put put on a no, little no shelter needed. <laughs> exactly. We don't need to go into that. But <laughs> um, I, I love how you made the the distinctions um that, that are necessary between sacramentality and analogy. I think that that's a very effective. But but I do want to kind of backtrack a little bit and go back into your your specific piece, uh, my Adam to your Eve. And could you give us a little understanding, a little background about how does knowing and really digging into the story of genesis impact our understanding of human sexuality so we kind of already have talked about the sacramentality um aspect of it but just like how does reading genesis inform us about our sexuality just on a on a very fundamental level
2: i i think there are a number of things going on when we read Genesis, but but one of the first and most important is that Genesis one and two are fundamentally different from Genesis three mm-hmm. and everything that happens after Genesis three.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They're they're privileged, they're in the garden, they're before the fall.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They give us an insight into God's intention of what humanity should be like, into uh like a, a fullness of human existence which simply does not exist afterwards, right? So we, we can go look at all of the other stories after Genesis 3, but we're going to see a, a problematic humanity, mm-hmm. uh, a less than ideal humanity. And there's something different about what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. So they, they actually call us to a different kind of imagination or a different kind of prayer. Because when we read Genesis 1 and 2, we're thinking about, you know, who has God made me to be? And when we read Genesis 3, we're thinking about where am I now Mm -hmm. Uh, in a a kind of different mode of reflecting or praying through those scriptures. So there's some friction. There's some slippage room. And a real difficulty then is that, you know, I read Genesis 1 and 2, and I think uh, I'm as good as Adam ever was. Uh, And so, like, I I put my own limits on Adam, and sometimes I miss some of those things, right? We have to learn to uncover that or or sweep that aside for a bit. Again, imagination, I think, is the faculty that we use. And I have to be willing to let Genesis 1 and 2 speak to me about possibilities within human nature and human experience that I may not have had. Uh, and, and may be very distant from me because I'm after Genesis 3. I'm after taking a bite of the forbidden fruit. Uh, I'm I'm sinful, and that sin may be clouding over me, or I'm broken, and that mm-hmm. brokenness may not let me see what's going on. So big lessons we learn in Genesis 1 and 2, that not only is sexuality fundamental to human existence, right? Like creation is not complete until male and female are created, or until Adam can say, at last, this one is bone in my bones and flesh in my flesh. So either story we get, sexuality is fundamental. And that sexuality includes some difference. Uh, it answers certain questions. Is not good for the man to be alone, right? We, we long for, we need some other uh, person, particularly human person, for our own good and for our own fulfillment. But we also learn then that, that what sexuality is is actually our ability to give ourselves so it's our ability to love that's that's a large part of what adam is lacking in genesis 2 right why is he waiting for eve bone of my bone flesh of my flesh why is he waiting to be split in half why is god waiting for that to happen before saying yep we got it now we can move on well it's because You know, despite the fact that dogs are men's best friend, we still want women, right? Like, like there's something that a dog cannot do, cannot be for me. And actually what it is that a dog cannot do or be for me is a dog cannot allow me to give the fullness of myself. A dog cannot receive everything that I have to give. Great companion for a lot of things. Easier to get along with than most of our neighbors but but cannot receive the fullness of my love. Hey, that's why, you know, age makes such a difference in, in complete mutual self-giving creative kinds of relationships. That's why similar backgrounds. That's why there's so much discernment into choosing a spouse or even your best friends. You're looking for someone who can say, and I'm picking up what you're laying down. I can take it all of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, what we find in genesis 1 and 2 especially genesis 2 is that part of the reason that we have different bodies that we have a whole structure of sexuality is that we need a receiver for our gift and that receiver has to be made specifically to be able to accept what it is that we we have to give what we want to give um
0: and there has to my be the capacity for a fruitful donation danced- Yes. Yeah, so sorry go ahead
2: that's right that's right yeah no i mean i mean my experience of, of of frustration all my life can often be analyzed i think it can for everyone in these terms right like i have something to give and these people cannot receive it i'm you're my youth group, but what I really want to do is teach a calculus class. <laughs> and nobody's here for calculus class, right? Like, why is this uh, not working? Because you're trying
1: to get
2: something they don't want.
1: So, Tommy, like I said earlier, when I introduced you, you have already, um, you're a new contributor and you've already produced a couple blogs and a second blog that you produced for the same, um, you know, you obviously have a lot to say. So the second blog that you produced for us um, during this theme that we have about men and and women and how, you know, God created them. Um, the title is called the rule of nines and you're an EMT, um, and a volunteer firefighter. So can you explain a little bit of the rule of nines and, in um, that blog that you wrote for us a little bit? Because again, you talk about the nine different parts of the body that you, you know, check, check for burns and, and, um, and then you go towards the, you know, the, the sexual organs, and that's only 1%. And so can you explain uh, that block just a little bit?
2: Yeah. And and that's a fun one. So for, you know, all the dads who are about to give a talk, um, you can, <laughs> you can have lots of fun on the rule of nines. Uh, it, I, I think it works well. The, I mean, the rule of nines is it's a body surface area rule. It's a rule of thumb. And I mean, most people are familiar with things like first, second, and third degree burns, right? It's a way of right. classifying what kind of injuries you have. And we need lots of little tools like that in the field or in the hospital, because it's easy to get distracted, right? Oh, that guy's on fire. Uh, like, <laughs> all right, okay, calm down. What, what are we going to do? What, right? What? I would be needed, terrible right?
1: at this, by the
0: way.
2: <laughs> uh, so, you know, other rules that people can imagine. Hey, uh, did we burn the airway? That's very serious, as opposed to we burned the elbow. All right, different consideration. So rule of nines. There, there are the body is broken into regions that are nine percent of the surface area. Nine regions. Like an arm is nine percent. Right, a head is nine percent of the surface area of the body. Roughly calculating, there you have it. Nine uh, percent. Eleven regions gets us to ninety nine percent. That last percent, the 1-1% region, is the crotch, the genitalia, uh, and and it's 1% of the area. It's a very significant percent of the area, right? Um, But that's how you count. Well, uh, if we start thinking about the way that we try to express our sexuality or the way that we try to understand our sexuality, it's very easy for us to get distracted by the 1%. And I'm not saying that the 1% is less important, right? right? The, the, obviously, the genitalia in a way is the the high point of sexuality, it's the focal point. On the other hand, uh, (laughs) I mean, uh, we can fall into this trap, I'll, I'll say it boldly, of thinking, hey, I'm a virgin until I'm married in my 20s. So I have not expressed my sexuality until my wedding night, right? Specifically because I have not done anything with that 1% of my body surface area with another person. That would be the wrong way to think about your sexuality. As if you somehow did not become a woman until right. you know your, your wedding night, until you have intercourse with your husband. Uh, and, and on the reverse, as if somehow a time that you slipped up and, and failed against chastity and did something with the 1% surface area of your body uh, you know, somehow made you a woman or or fundamentally reoriented all of these things. The the point is, uh, we don't want to limit our sexuality to 1% of our surface area. And here's the joke, dads, you know, or to 1.2% of your surface area. Right. Um, Um, that
0: was a dad joke. (laughs) That was a dad joke. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Got it. which is um, there
0: because you're a dad so it's fine
2: it's it's fine i'm not sure if i need to leave five seconds for this to be edited out later but uh there we go
0: did we need is that edit worthy i don't know it seems like it's good entertainment
2: um, so not not yeah. to get distracted and look if we think about this another way how many magazines do we see all the time that talk about you know enhancing your romance enhancing your relationship they're effectively saying the same thing I'm saying in in EMT speak, right? Like don't think that romance is just about what you do with one small part of your body. It's it's about, it's about a full on everything, right? Mm -hmm. It's intellectual, it's emotional, it's candles, it's dinner. I mean, it it should be the whole day, the whole life.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And similarly, I think we can fall into a trap of thinking, uh, oh, somehow I'm not male when I'm a teacher, Somehow I'm nonspecific. I'm a generic human when I'm in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not right. Uh, mm-hmm. It turns out, like we were saying with Benedictine spirituality, I am who I am wherever I go and wherever you plot me down. And I can pretend to be someone else only for a little while and at that to the detriment of who I am. So a, a flip side of that reflection on the rule of nines is, uh, you know, look, if you're thinking of your masculinity or you're thinking of your femininity That's something you do only with 1% of your time or 1% of your surface area. You're missing the point. Your whole body is made masculine. Your whole body is made feminine. Your whole person is made masculine. Your whole person is made feminine. And we need to learn to live all of that.
0: So not to, I mean, I don't want to get super controversial here, but I will because I actually do want to. Um, <laughs> we have She's this been chomping at the bit. Don't <sighs> <let her> lie. <laughs> um, you know, we have these issues today with gender flexibility. It's, it's a super hot topic. Everybody's talking about it, but it does seem to me like our culture is suffering from. You mentioned <laughs> that that we have tunnel vision in in understanding our own masculinity and femininity, but perhaps just even culturally, we're suffering from tunnel vision in that we have so much attention on this minuscule portion of our population who may indeed have some, I don't know, physiological anomaly or biological anomaly, um, but, but then we also have gender dysphoria, right? And, and we're, we're focusing so much on that and we're losing sight of the beauty of masculinity and femininity and the fact that it's not so fluid. You know, newsflash, your genes aren't going to change even if you change your body parts. Nor right? is it toxic. <laughs> right. And, and all of these things are so, they're hard for us to talk about culturally because, again, they are controversial in a way. I don't think that they should be because a lot of this is just science. But, but what do you think this dysphoria is, where do you think it's from? Where do you think, what do you think is fueling it? Do you hey. want to say? <laughs> 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 squirming. I am, I am. I was squirming, <laughs> asking it.
2: <laughs> Look, I, I, it's it's an exceptionally important question. There, in fact, there may be no more important question for the generation of people right now who are parents, mm. as they're considering how this plays out in the life of their children. Yes, uh, and and I think that's right because you know part of as we're saying, being created human is is being created in a community and for a community recognizing that uh that other people come along with who you are your family uh, the family that you did not choose into which you're born the family that you choose your your family by marriage um the people that with whom you associate where you work all of this stuff is part of our human community and when we're asking questions like this about what we should do as a society in any any form but particularly what should we do in terms of how we treat other persons and, and how we understand other persons, we're fundamentally asking a question about love of neighbor, right? Because because as, as John Paul II says so beautifully many times, the only appropriate response to another human being is love. Uh, and so we're, we're asking a question here. What should we do with our politics? What should we do with our sociology? What should we do with our moral theology? How should we parent? What goes on in the parish? We're asking a question that fundamentally resolves to the form how do I love my neighbor? Mm-hmm. And particularly, how do I love my neighbor when I disagree with my neighbor or when I think my neighbor is doing something uh, this, this dreadful? Uh, these are very difficult, delicate questions. But, but I want to say at the outset, I think they're actually all rooted in uh, a, a genuine pursuit of the good for another person. Mm-hmm. There are obviously people who are completely messed up, nasty, and they really are trying to harm other people. But those are few and far between. But let's bracket those off and say the debate we're having right now is about how best to love.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and, and that has a, a question behind it, which is sort of, are there truth conditions to love? Uh, are, are there are there rules that cannot be broken or lines that cannot be crossed, right? How much of that is fluid? And that's an open debate among a lot of people. I mean, it's not an open debate for me. It's not an open debate for you, but I recognize when we're having these conversations with people that one, we're asking how best to love two, that involves a whole nother set of theoretical questions about, is there actually even a best right answer? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, some observations that seem painfully obvious to me on one side of life and seem to be forgotten on another side are things like, uh, boy, I have no problem imposing rules on anyone in my household about appropriate use of knives and the stove and the propane torch and (laughs) anything else, right? Like it seems to me there is an appropriate way to express your relationship with me it does not involve pointing that firearm at me, right? I mean, we, we can come up with all kinds of examples. I have no problem scolding my three-year-old daughter when she reaches for the fireplace and there's a fire going on, right? It's not appropriate. You're messing with things you don't understand well. And, and I think where we are uh, in society is some of us are looking at other people saying, look, and you are messing with things you just don't understand well. Let's take a break. But on the flip side, I have a kind of parental authority over my daughter that i don't have over my neighbor mm-hmm. so the conversation i have with my neighbor is not no you may not and if you do it again you're punished it actually has to be that preaching of the gospel mm-hmm. It has to be that convincing of the truth mm-hmm. right uh and in that case I, I think what we're really doing is even more difficult that we have to live a life for me which is so wonderfully masculine that everybody else just wants to be masculine mm-hmm. Uh, and And which is so wonderfully masculine around women that they simply want to be better women, and we all have friends like that right i mean i 'm sure our spouses are that way, right I mean like my wife makes me want to be a better man, and i don 't just mean in reference to the to the um movie whose name I cannot remember right now uh, but but I mean, like she makes me want to be better at being masculine mm-hmm. right. Uh, in in that way, she's supportive of those kinds of things and, and complimentary of them. All right, so now to the question: uh, What about gender dysphoria? What about people who who are encountering themselves as as fluid or want to be someone else or something else? Um, I think I think you have to stop and and ask yourself first: Am I having an honest conversation with another person?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. I am never having an honest conversation with a seven-year-old. Mm-hmm. I, I have a high degree of skepticism about anything a seven-year-old tells me, it's right? It's wisdom.
0: It's just pure wisdom, yes.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, you know what I mean? So uh, <laughs> like I, I'm able to listen sometimes to a seven-year-old say, hey, I think I want to be a firefighter today and a unicorn tomorrow. And yeah. okay, great. Cool. I, right? Um, so, So I think part of what's happened now is like we've gotten to a point where we simply want to trust the voice of a seven year old as the end all be all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's problematic, right? So mm-hmm. to any parents listening, I mean, just remember the basics. You can say no, right? Um, <laughs> plain and simple um, and, and well, that's a good thing. So when you're thinking about other adults or young adults, right? I mean, I, I teach college. I have at least one student every semester come to my office for a very honest conversation which says, I don't know if you know, but I don't understand myself at all. And mm-hmm. I think I may be, and, and here comes this litany of sexual kinds of things. It mm-hmm. may be a same-sex attraction. It may be an opposite-sex attraction. It may be I'm ready to get married at the age of 18. It may be I never want to get married. I mean, like, like, all this unfolds in a beautiful and brutally honest conversation, I think the best thing for adults to do in the room is to take a deep breath and say, wow, you know, thank you for sharing honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also to make that mental note, which says, um, you you might be confused about yourself. You might still be developing in yourself. And before I go poking and prodding and pick a path for you,
3: mm-hmm.
2: maybe we need to stop and, and sit with where you are right now for a little while longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Maybe I don't need to cut something or jump right in with an easy made solution. So I I think some of those are just generic, good advice that speaks directly to those, those kinds of issues, but more specifically, when's gender dysphoria. uh, I I think part of the problem is for a while uh, we've operated with really narrow categories of understanding masculinity and femininity. When Mm -hmm. I was growing up, yeah, uh, you know, men were not allowed to cook. Right. Uh, so, or it was
0: a girly thing if you did,
2: or it was a girly thing if yeah. you did. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I cannot bake terribly well. And maybe that's cause I'm just a bad baker, but I, I realized as part of my formation, baking was simply something men did not do. <laughs> but right? it's not okay, part so, of your
0: genetics. You're right.
2: Yes. Right. Yeah, but, but, nor am so, I. <laughs>
1: <yeah.
2: laughs> yes. If I've operated with this kind of overwhelming stereotype and then I recognize one part of the stereotype can be broken, Mm -hmm. I'm tempted to think all parts of the stereotype can be broken, right? Well, hey, if I can bake, if I can cook, can I not also bear children? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, I had to go to a class and do a few things and learn to bake. Can't I go somewhere else to another clinic and Mm -hmm. be made a mother of a child or something, right? I mean, like, Mm -hmm. there's this continuum in that regard Mm -hmm. in which we might be breaking down something which needs to be broken down Mm
3: -hmm. but
2: we might be misunderstanding that which we're breaking down to put it without all of the relative pronouns I have a bad stereotype of what it means to be a man Mm -hmm. and when that stereotype is broken it's only natural that I'm then not going to know what it means to be a man period Mm -hmm. and in that confusion I very well might cross a different line and instead of coming up with an answer of what it means to be a good man. I might just come up with another answer of what it means to be a bad man. Mm. Um, and, and that, well, I think, I think that's, think a, that's
0: I, I think that's an excellent answer. And I, I think you're right. It, it definitely, it, it makes us, it, it gives us the instruction or the, the practical advice to just pause and, and consider what really is the conflict here. You know, is the conflict, is the conflict, um, in interior? Is the conflict really a problem with my physiology? Is, you know, what is really in conflict here? And really looking to gather all the information and kind of going back to what you had just talked about in terms of young people coming to you specifically, but just in general, like we have achieved a level of awareness, I think that is good culturally, and that we realize that people who are in college, you know, 18 to 22 years old, do not have fully developed brains yet. Like they, even, the, I mean, that's why we still consider that oh there's a word for it I'm forgetting what the word is it's emerging adult that's the word like it's it's that you move from adolescence to this emerging adulthood into adulthood and it is a process and yet we are so it's weird to me that culturally we've accepted that like you're not yet an adult until you're like 25 or 26 years old right because you You can't can't rent a car right exactly or hotel room or all of these things that's exactly right and yet we're allowing children, adolescents, not even emerging adults in many cases, to make these decisions who do not have full faculties, who do not have just as you said, all of the information. And yet we're not pausing there. You know, yeah. I, I feel like it's good to struggle with the questions. It's good to dig into. You know, is this just a gender role problem that you're having? Because there are non-essential gender stereotypes that we can throw out the window today. It's totally fine. But is is that the problem or is it something deeper? Is it interior? Is it something that you can, that you need to struggle with for a while before decisions start to be made? Well, and I like what Tommy, you said,
1: instead of me picking a path for you, let's stop for a second. And I think that is the rush. There's a rush to like make a decision um, and, and move forward. And Fran, you picked up on that too, but the phrase me picking a path for you, I think, I think we're letting, you know, therapists and parents and even children pick a path. And like that becomes the gospel truth for them.
0: And again, if you can't even pick a rental car on a parking lot, how can you pick your gender?
2: Yeah. these, these are deeply problematic kinds of things. I think you're pointing to the, to the right thing, or college major, right? You, you mm, don't get to yeah. a college major in a lot of places, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's something you can change pretty quickly, and it might just be one more semester at school. Or
3: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I do want to return us to the, the deep sense of the theology of the body, in which we're trying to understand that, that part of what it means to have a body and a body which is my own and different from everybody else's body is that that body is the means by which I'm able to give myself to the world, All mm. uh, right. So if, if we come back and we hear someone say, boy, I am unable to give myself to the world in this body, that is a fundamental issue. This is not a surface level, like, mm. should I cut my hair or not, right? Mm-hmm. This is not even what's less than surface level, but still fairly surface level, what career should I have? How should I make money? Mm -hmm. This is a fundamental question about who I am as a person. Uh, And so we need to be sensitive when we hear other people saying, man, I am struggling to be male, or I am struggling to be female. Read. I am struggling to know how to give myself appropriately to other people. Mm -hmm. That's a deep question. And that, that, that includes a long process of discernment and thinking. But like I say, the flip side on that, uh, and, and I think about this particularly now that I have a daughter and, and, you know, my female students coming in and they're sharing with me things. And I'm thinking, all right, how can I be a supportive masculine professor to help you develop as a woman And that doesn't look the same for every woman, but I'm just saying I'm recognizing there's that. And it's the same thing when the young men come to me and they say, man, I'm struggling with being a man. I'm not sure if I want to keep being a man or if I want to be this kind of man or whatever. I think right? I have to be myself Mm -hmm. genuinely, perfectly, and give that self to these people, to my students, to my wife, to my child, in order to help them be who they are. And when they're struggling with that, I have to admit – That is, that is at the deepest level of who it means to be a human or to put it back in the narrative of Genesis. This is a, this is an issue that God created before the fall. Mm -hmm. That is our sexual difference and our sexuality, our capacity to give. Uh, So when anybody's highlighting an issue with that, we're highlighting Genesis one or Genesis two problem. We're Mm -hmm. at the core of their existence. There are no easy answers. Now, a second thing we have to read on onto this Genesis three tells us we're messed up, uh, and and so we have to sit with that deeply, and that's where Catholics were always you know convicted of guilt and and overriding guilt and well confession and all the wonderful ways we have of coming back and getting over. Did that. you
0: just drop the truth bomb that original man is different <laughs> from historical man? <gasps> yes, <laughs>
2: um, and. And, you know, that means then that part of the problem is not other people. Part of the problem is me, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so I might have to stop and say, oh, I'm not the man I want to be. Do I want to be the wrong man,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? Am I even convinced that I know who I want to be? Mm. Uh, and then can I get there? Is that in the field of possibility for me? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a question that takes a long time to answer. I mean, a lifetime to answer. Uh, in, in reality. But we can come to some some deeper settlement on that issue as we discern our vocations, as we have genuine holy friendships, as we live a life in the sacraments. And I think uh, we look for the quick fix, the snip, snip, the the take a shot, the do this. Uh, and, and then, hey, you will look like the person that you think you want to be in six months. Mm. And that's a start sometimes, but it may be a false start others.
0: Oh, these are hard things that we're wrestling with and, and we're doing it really just almost on the daily in terms of the culture. Um, and so I think giving some, giving some good and sensitive um, instruction and, um, to ourselves and and to to people at large in terms of how to deal with that is so very helpful and just reminding us that again I, i loved that you referenced the jp2 quote of the only appropriate response to the human person is love you know it's it's never an agenda it's never um utility it's always looking at them as though as though as though they are a total person and that that they are unique and special and different from every other person, you're not going to have the same kind of conversation with one person that you would have had. Like all of the pat answers don't work when you are in Mm -hmm. a relationship. Like we can have all of like the list of things like, this is why you should not do all the things that you, that I don't want you to do. But on the other hand, if you're listening to what they're saying, those answers have to be changed, not in terms of objectivity, but in terms of maybe even presentation.
2: Absolutely. P- presentation and in your mode of presence to the other person. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that's going on in my mind often when when people share with me these deep, meaningful struggles uh, is is I think about my own deep, meaningful struggles. Mm-hmm. I think about mistakes I've made where I've not lived up to, to who I'm called to be and things that, you know, sort of don't make sense to me. Like, well, mm-hmm. what, are, what are my standard temptations? And It's easy enough for me to look at someone else and say, I have never been tempted by that. You're out of your mind. What are you thinking? Until I stop and say, oh, but I have been tempted by something else. Mm. Um, And I'm not saying that I share my temptations and struggles. I'm saying my place of responding Mm -hmm. needs to include that place within me that realizes I, too, am broken. I, too, am in need of grace. I, I'm, I'm not perfect. I don't have all the right answers and I can't live this gospel.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, in fact, one sign that I'm preaching the wrong gospel is that I am able to live up to that gospel, mm-hmm. right? The, the gospel needs to always be beyond mm-hmm. my ability to achieve. Yeah. And so I, I want to have a delicate touch, but I want to be firm. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that includes recognizing my own brokenness.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It also includes the the deep response of a theologian to weep for the sinfulness and the brokenness in the world around you.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And not just your own contribution to it, but to recognize that, that this world is broken. Yeah. And, and part of what we wait for is a world where it's not broken, but that world is not this world. Right. And so there, there often comes a time when I simply have to say, no, Tommy, it's not appropriate to do this or do that no matter how much you think you want to do it, your, your wanter is broken. You want something wrong for yourself. Right. right? Um, and, and your thinker is broken. You don't have a perfect understanding of this and it it requires honesty and humility with myself to say, Hey, dude, maybe you don't have perfect insight into this Mm. or We've all developed this. This is how we're functioning adults, right? Like, hey, when that warning bell goes off, says, go do this. Your answer is no, right? There's no appropriate time to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stop. That's a firm line, right? Uh, We've got all those internal bits set up for ourselves. And I think part of what we're seeing in society is a lot of people have lost any sensibility that there could be anything wrong. There could be any line not worth crossing or there. You know th- that there's no need to stop and take a break it's like hey i want to run a four minute mile let me go do it mm-hmm. well i mean a four minute mile is impossible for the vast majority of humanity and it's going to take a lot of time right well i want to be a supermodel well hey okay, but <laughs> well you're I five gotta... two
0: it'll never happen i've right. you know, heard am. that so oh, many right. times you are who uh, you so are
2: i gotta quit eating m&ms when my daughter gets m&ms too right i mean so um we have to be willing to admit in humility and honesty that not everything we want is an indication of what's good for us right. or what's true uh, and that's a very difficult conversation to have with a lot of people and again it's one that we know in some aspects of our lives right like you want to play with that knife no it's not appropriate for you to play with a knife you're you're too young you want to use that tool no um, and then somehow we lose sight of that when we say, wait a minute, you want to do something with your sexuality. Uh, well, no, that's not appropriate. Yeah.
1: We I could think talk it's for so- hours
0: about we this, could. y'all.
1: We could. And I think it says a lot that you actually have students who come and yes. confide in you. So, I mean, how lucky they are to have um, a professor that... Well, have that honest conversation and that hard conversation and that tough conversation. Um, So this just means you have to come back because I think the the end of our of our conversation probably touched on a whole, you know, um, whole other topic that we could talk about for hours. (laughs) So please come back and join us again. I'd
2: love to can can i return to the adam and eve piece yeah a, i would love for quickly? you
0: to can this be your last little bit we always end all of our podcasts with like there's one more thing i'd like to say do you want <laughs> yeah. this to be it
2: um well i want this to be it for now but then if i think of something better in 30 <laughs> seconds i, I want you're, that you're to just go. like oh. green
1: and i uh, this is
0: <laughs> did you say you were an attorney you fit in well here <laughs>
2: <laughs> um i Part of what I'm I'm trying to get at in that sense of sacramentality, that sense of the Adam and Eve language, the old Adam and the new Adam, is that, you know, one thing we get to do as humans, fairly or unfairly, is kind of represent everybody else. We've all been there, uh, oh, you're from Arkansas, you must know everybody from Arkansas, or... Uh, you know, you're the only woman in this group. Tell us what women think about this.
0: Yes. Like,
2: okay, well, it doesn't actually work that way. Uh, except in sacraments, it does work <laughs> that way, right? Uh, and so one of the, the fundamental beautiful things about marriage is that I get to be the epitome of masculinity. I get to be every man for my wife. hmm and that's, that's a fundamental responsibility,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but it, it, it's a profound joy. So I have to think of myself in the sacrament of marriage as loving my wife in the name of every other man who ever has been or ever will be, as all sons of Adam. And, and I have to think of my wife as like me loving every other woman through her and receiving the love of every woman through her. That's what sacraments allow us to do to be that focal point. Mm. But they also connect us to God and God's love. And that's the sense in which we talk about the new Adam or loving in the name of God, loving Christian marriage. The dignity there is I am appointed, I am chosen, I am ordained to be a privileged and special instrument of love to my wife in a way that I am not ordained, not called, for anyone else. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not speaking just of the expressions of love. I'm speaking of the whole way of being, my whole capacity to give myself, you know, brought to a highlight in the sacrament of marriage really comes to that focal point. And so if, if I get to say anything at the end for people still listening, it would be that to, to think about your vocation in those terms, that you are the tip, the, the leading edge of the love of everyone else
0: mm-hmm. for
2: this person including the love of God for this person.
0: Amen. And you know Tommy when you first turned in uh, this piece my Adam to your Eve we 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 were you and I were kind of going back and forth just in terms of editing and process and I was saying I see this piece as two I see it as two pieces or at least two parts like but I don't want to separate them like you 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 explored at first that that you know original and historical man and Genesis but then you moved so easily into Christian marriage and the sacramentality of marriage but I would like to revisit that mm-hmm. so so think about that because I think that that's something that that you you touched on in this piece but could just be like whoa, blown up and and you did a good job you gave us a little teaser I think there's more there <laughs>
2: Thanks. Well, I was, I was hoping that instead of the easy topics like sexuality, we could do something, you know, more difficult like Trinity.
0: Uh, Oh yeah. This is going to happen too. This will happen too. Do not worry. I love it. This is, this is a promise made more where that came from. Do you have a last? Thank you guys for having me. Oh, absolutely. Um, I do have one little last little bit. I like to listen to health and wellness podcasts as well as other, you know, more, more holy podcasts. And there's one particularly that I like to listen to that's very secular, like nobody on it is, is. I don't even know if they're Christian, um, but it's interesting to me, um, because they do, it's, it's very data-driven, um, the, the, the host is very smart and well-read, but she had a, a, um, a, a researcher on who was talking about, um, she has a, she's basically the founder, I believe, of the, the most widely used internet fertility app for women, but not Christian, like, we use it as Catholics, I mean, not this particular app, but we use apps all the time as Catholics, it's, you know, to integrate with our practice of natural family planning and responsible parenthood and all of those things. But she's really taking it just like this is your these are your hormones. This is how a woman's body is different from a man's body. And this is where I'm tying it in here. She she went on this particular podcast. um, She was talking about um, working out and um, how for forever, basically, we have been told, like, this is the right way to work out. This is the right caloric intake. This is when you should. But all of those studies were done on men or postmenopausal women, and they don't really take into account the, the, the cyclical hormonal changes that happen monthly for women of fertility, you know, women in, in our fertile years in those you know four decades or however long we have of fertility, and that we should not expect our bodies to behave as men's bodies. And I was like, pause. Did the secular world just say that our bodies as women should not be expected to behave like men's bodies? It was like, I mean, I was like, thank goodness that someone in the secular world is realizing what we have been, I mean, known from from Genesis, first of all, but, but then, you know, reminded by... Pope St. John Paul II and his Theology of the Body that we are essentially different not just not just spiritually, not just whole person but like biology tells us this this is science, this is something that we can prove scientifically and then the the piece de resistance at the end, the, the question was asked, well then what do you think of contraception, y'all she went to town on the contraceptive industry, again from a purely secular i mean she had no inkling in fact she mentioned a couple things i I hesitate to recommend this podcast because she mentioned a couple of things (laughs) that might that might uh well no not might that do conflict with our catholic behaviors Uh, but what she was saying was so thoroughly true and i was like i wish that i wish that we could just come together and because we, we cannot continue to have this fuzzy confusion and accept that that's the norm when science tells us differently and our faith informs us differently. Anyway, I just want to say good on you, secular world (laughs) woman who has a secular fertility (laughs) app. I liked it. Good on you exercise woman.
2: (laughs) You want free range chicken with no antibiotics, but you want hormone therapy in your bathroom for 40 years. Yep.
0: Yep. That's exactly right. I loved it. It was a great podcast.
1: Okay, my last little bit is not near as um, intelligent as that. However, I think, Tommy, our parents might have been friends because you're my Adam to your Eve. Um, you start out that in your parents' bathroom, they have the marriages are made in heaven, but so is thunder and lightning. So my parents have the same phrase in their bathroom. I'm not kidding. But
0: why so in I, the bathroom, I guys? Don't
1: know. <laughs> I, so when I read this, when I read your blog the first time, I was like, <laughs> Oh, my sister submitted a, but, but, you know, because she even mentioned that in my, um, in her, you know, maid of honor speech. So I was shocked to see your face at the bottom Not my sister's. <laughs> but anyways, I've never really heard that phrase um, frequently, except for that was like kind of the family, you know, the family uh, motto that marriages are made in heaven, but so are thunder and lightning. So anyways, I felt like we were going to be fast friends when, when I like, <laughs> That's all I have for today, but thank you for joining us and let's do this again.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: All right. Have a good day, y'all. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thanks for joining us today on Bellator Colloquium. Please look for Bellator Society on everything social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And if you like what we're doing here on this podcast, we would love for you to share that with us. Rate us on iTunes to help us get the word out and share, share, share. We cannot wait to chat next time right here on Bellator Colloquium, the conversation for online warriors for the true, good, and beautiful.